In this episode, we tackle a big question. What kind of society do we want to live in? Under capitalism, we're taught to believe that happiness and fulfillment is to be found through consumption, through work, through growth. And yet, these are the very things that cause harm and destruction on multiple levels. We are destroying the environment through our overconsumption. Our work breeds alienation and ill health, and our obsession with growth has brought greater and greater wealth disparity and debt, increasing by the minute. What, then, are the alternatives? If we are seeking to change the values and orientations of our society, what new models or approaches might we find useful? My name is Amanda Wilson, and you're listening to Roadmaps for Changing the World, a podcast produced by the School of Social Innovation at St. Paul University. Hartmut Rosa is a German philosopher and sociologist who has written extensively on both sides of this question. In his book, Social Acceleration, A New Theory of Modernity, published in English in 2013, Rosa argues that a quintessential feature, and indeed problem, of our current society is acceleration, an insatiable desire for growth and innovation at an accelerating pace. In his follow-up book, Resonance, A Sociology of the Relationship to the World, Rosa presents an alternative way to conceptualize the good life, based on the idea of resonance. If acceleration is the problem, might resonance be a solution? In November of this year, our Research Center for Social Innovation and Social Transformation had the immense pleasure of hosting Hartmut Rosa for a conference entitled Resonance Beyond Growth, The Good Life in Post-Growth Societies. The auditorium was packed, on a Friday evening no less, including a busload of attendees who arrived from Montreal and a group of students and faculty who joined us online from Ramuski. Following his talk, Hartmut spent a couple days with members of our research center, and my colleague Simon Tremblay-Pepin had an opportunity to chat with him further. What you're about to hear are highlights from that conversation. Rosa begins by explaining what is meant exactly by acceleration and how it manifests in today's society. It's a bit like people feel they are in a state of crisis. I find this absolutely amazing. When you ask people, how, how is it going, right? How, how are you right now? Uh, I mean, unless you are sick or you're laid off or something of this sort, right? Most people uh, tend to answer, well, uh, everything is quite okay. I'm doing quite well, but it's too stressful right now, right? We always tend to add right now, hoping that soon after we get used to the new technology or to the new situation, we will have more time. And this is a kind of generalized illusion we live on, right? People always think, well, but next year it will be better. Right now everything is so hectic because we have this new program. And, and right now it's totally chaotic because
because we have the new software or whatever it is, right? Or the new, new the new uh, something is new, new colleagues or new clients or whatever it is. And the fact is, as a sociologist, I would really tell you, it's not going to get any better. Next year, it will be worse. Right? It's really only that we that we believe soon once I get this or that position, whatever it is, uh, things will uh, get better. So I think we are, we are there is a kind of almost generalizable uh, sense of crisis which we manage by hoping things will get better. But it's also true that that in, um, in a really amazing amount of people uh, will tell you if, if it gets a little worse, I will break down, right? And this is why we have all over the Western world and not just over the Western world. You find this in Latin America, you find it in Korea, and you certainly find it in China that a lot of people say, I'm very close to uh, burnout, right? And of course, quite a, quite a few uh, actually fall into that trap. Every single piece of technology really comes with the promise of saving time. It, it is amazing when you start thinking about it. I mean, all the means of transport, starting with a bicycle, right, does help you save time and the car and everything else. But it's also with a micro uh, wave oven or the ha hair dryer or you can it's very hard to think of anything that is not supposing to uh, save time and I mean the fact is they do help us save time I mean think of the incredible amount of time we save with the smartphone right in, in instead of going to the station to see when the train leaves you just ask your smartphone or so so it does help it, it does give you an incredible amount of time so the interesting question which really made me do my work right is where does the time go where is it right and, and then you really realize it's not even a completely new phenomenon right I mean modernity has always been about changing temporal structures about saving time and it's an exactly parallel story the more we save time the better we are saving time the less we have it right? so, so so the interesting question is where does it go how do I explain this and this is what uh, then uh, kind of led me to my analysis that it's it's the explosion of opportunities but also expectations which uh, um, uh, which goes ha hand in hand with the logic of acceleration and my 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 insight is my basic insight is that the rates of acceler no the, the the rates of increase so to speak are higher than the rates of acceleration and it's the same with e I mean email is my favorite example writing an email takes half as long roughly from writing a letter right so if you write uh, 10 letters let's say 1970 or so you wrote 10 letters per day and it took you one hour uh, so then the e email was introduced in the 1990s and that and that would mean you're done in 30 minutes but of course, if you double the number of emails you read and write, right, then it takes you an hour again. You write and read 20 emails. But I mean, even there, there is a kind of slip, a, a small slip, because you have to contemplate 20 different uh, uh, things, right, forms of interaction. So um, in fact, even then, you need more time than before. But when you triple the number of emails you receive and read and, and send, um, then uh, you write now 30 emails instead of 10 letters before, then you need more time for your communication or you have to hurry up right I mean that's the uh, that and that is exactly the state of affairs we are in we have increased the distance we cover per day we have increased the number of communications we have uh, per day we have increased that particularly the tasks on the to-do list per uh, per day right and the rates of increase are higher than the acceleration rates and this creates this omnipresent feeling of uh, running out of time Rosa's description of acceleration brings to mind the factory scene in Charlie Chaplin's silent film, Modern Times, where he desperately tries to keep up with a conveyor belt that's moving faster and faster, and eventually finds himself swallowed up by the giant cogs of the machine itself.
is the concept of acceleration a feeling, a way in which we are relating to the world? Are we just conditioned to feel busy and stressed all of the time? Or is the world, our interactions, processes, activities, etc., actually getting faster, more intense? There were really a lot of colleagues who, who thought, or people who thought, uh, it, it's only a way of talking, right? You have to claim that you're short on time, because otherwise, if you say, oh, I have enough time, it, it's like saying I, there's nothing I, uh, I have to do, basically, right? So, uh, but now I, and then I really did a long time of research invested in this, and now I'm, I think I have enough evidence to really claim, no, it's a, it's a, it's a state of affairs that is pretty generalizable, right? Uh, most people's to-do lists are exploding, but which doesn't mean it's true for everyone. I mean, it's quite interesting. I mean, a lot of, I, I would actually say different social uh, groups or classes or strata are differently affected for, for those who are rather in elite positions, so to speak, well-educated, academic or so. It's somehow, it, in a certain sense, it's themselves who, who, uh, who fill their uh, to-do lists, right? But if you, if you have a regular job, let's say as a truck driver or someone working in a, in a supermarket or so, then the to-do list is uh, kind of uh, filled by your bosses very often, right? Or by the company or so. And if, if your to-do list is completely empty because you you are for example unemployed or so you might you might be unemployed and have an empty to do list but that means that your time is totally devaluated right then your situation is very miser miserable uh, just as much for for other reasons so I believe this logic of permanent uh, pressure is kind of uh, felt in all places of society. Yeah, we are somehow getting out of sync with a with a whole number of things. I mean, the logic of a, you know modern society. I mean, if you want to understand it from individual life, it's it's really as I said, it's the explosion of the to do list, right? I mean, more and more entries are waiting for you. So the interesting question is who, as we said in the beginning, who fills it, right? And I think it's it's filled with legitimate expectations. You get in a situation, for example, you sit. Let's let's assume you sit with at your doctor's place, and he says. I, we talked about it, you should move more, right? make more steps per day, and you feel guilty, you think, yeah, actually, I should have done that. And then you go to the workplace, for example, if you're working in academia, people will tell you, 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 we talked about it, you should publish more, and you feel, actually, I should publish more, or you should create more research money, that's a legitimate expectation too, I should have done that. Or then you teach in class, and, and, and you feel students have a legitimate right that you uh, should uh, uh, have read their papers more carefully, and, and so on, and, and there are expectations on the family side. So, so it's a kind of generalized shortage of time, which almost leads in a certain mode of aggression. Be fast, be efficient. And, uh, and this goes together with a, with a logic, what I call dynamic stabilization, setting the world in motion, speeding it up, speeding everything up. So not only do we find ourselves in a situation where the demands on our time are increasing, we feel pressured to do more with less. And yet... As Rosa notes, not all things in the world can be easily subjected to this acceleration. Environmental regeneration and democracy are two processes, he suggests, are incompatible with acceleration, leading to what he calls desynchronization. This desynchronization is also felt at the individual level in our everyday activities, leading to both individual and collective crisis and burnout, resulting in a form of alienation. And but not the whole world. The whole world is not not all aspects of the world are equally speedable, right? Some things are inherently slow. For example, I think I read the whole environmental crisis as a problem of desynchronization. Nature has its proper times. It takes time to grow a tree, and it actually takes time for fish to reproduce. For example, so if you fish the oceans at a path which is too high, or cut the trees at a path which is too high, or pollute the air at a path which 
pace, which is too high, right? Um, and then you get these environmental desynchronization. And I believe even for politics, I, I believe you can explain the current dissatisfaction with political processes. Uh, with this kind of double feature, on the one hand, there's a lot of aggression because everyone is short of time and wants to get a clear, clear-cut decisions. And But on the other hand, a uh, uh, de democracy, particularly democratic polit uh, um, um, uh, making of politics, is time-consuming. It does take time to get to rational decisions because democracy is not just about taking votes. Are you in favor of or against immigrants or something like this, right? It's about uh, articulating positions and, and formulating different um, um, interests and, op and opinions. And then you enter in a process of negotiation and deliberation. And this is time-consuming. And, the and we need more time to really do uh, get that done properly, but we got less time, so this creates tension. And this kind of tensions are also felt in our individual lives, right? I mean, I believe that the, what you could call the burnout crisis or the psychological crisis of our age, which goes uh, together also with the number of uh, eating disorders, even and anxiety disorders or sleeping disorders, right? An incredible amount of people have, have trouble uh, sleeping at night, which is not surprising because it means you have to go to so to speak, to to go down far quickly and then to to energize again in the morning quickly, and um, this is very very hard to do once you are in a, in a mode of aggression anyway. So I believe you can, we can find a really a crisis. You know, I, th I mean, on the individual level, it's a kind of individual psychological or burnout or depression crisis. Or, I mean, even attention deficit syndromes are related to the speed we live on, right? Because I mean, basically, the whole society has an attention deficit problem, right? Because with all digital technologies, you, sh you jump from one thing to the other. You can really see scientifically there's hard evidence that the attention spans decrease all the time. Uh, so there's a whole number of, um, uh, um, uh, of, of crises, but I believe we have a kind of collective crisis, which is almost like a collective burnout, right? I mean, modern societies get what well, you see in the political uh, sphere uh, to a state where we become unable to really appropriate things, to let things grow and to think uh, things through. and. Uh, that's an unhealthy state of affairs. The way I describe this uh, kind of emotional, psychological desynchronization, uh, f for this I use the term alienation, right? I mean, if you are too fast in the in the speed with which you interact with people, with places, with the work, actually with yourself, with your own body or with your own, your own biography, then you experience alienation. You you become incapable to really appropriate things, right? I mean, for example, if you if you if I mean, tourism is an interesting case in point, right? You you visit places, but you don't really, uh, you don't really get in touch with them, right? You cannot really connect to them. You 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 see the hotel and the airport and the pizza place maybe, but nothing else. So that leads to alienation. You meet many people, you listen to many uh, f uh, types of music, you read many books, and you see many places, but nothing really touches you. Nothing really speaks to you. So the, so you get into a what I call a, a state of alienation. What is the solution then? According to Rosa, the idea of resonance is an antidote to this increasing need for growth and speed. Resonance doesn't necessarily mean slower, but it requires a different kind of approach and engagement with the world. 
because you know I didn't want to say speed is always bad. That's that's a wrong impression. Sometimes when I talk, as we just talked, people think, oh, Rosa is the guru of deceleration. He's the slow down uh, priest, or so, right? But that's not right. I do not recommend slow firefighters or slow internet connections or not even a slow roller coaster, right? It's not a great experience if the roller coaster goes very slow. So spe speed is only becoming a problem if it leads to the forms of desynchronization we're talking about, right? If if it uh, incapacitates you to really connect. So I ask myself, what is the opposite of alienation? And this is how I arrived at a, a concept of resonance, right? We are we are in a healthy state, individually and collectively. If you are capable to get of, of, of getting in resonance with the people you talk to, right? For example, in a conversation, right? Sometimes it takes time to really find connection. Uh, or when you visit a place like Ottawa, I, I love Ottawa very much, right? But to really get a feel of it, for example, it's not enough to take a taxi and ride through it, right? You, you actually have to walk, for example. And then you get and in resonance. Then. And even then, even then it might not. Yeah, sometimes it, it, you might take a long time and it still doesn't happen. I mean, that's one of the things about resonance, right? You cannot engineer it. Sometimes you fail, right? Even so, you take a lot of time. But basically, resonance is a way of really getting in touch with the surroundings, with the people, with the thing you do, and even with your own body or your psyche, right? What the body does is something that requires attention, not just of take a pill and, and, and you're, you're over it. So that, that's basically how I arrived at the resonance conception. At this point, it might seem as though resonance is something that to be taken up at the individual level, part of the ever-growing self-help literature. Five steps to build a better you. Yet Rosa is quick to point out that resonance is much more than that. The starting point is not something an individual does, but a way of relating to and experiencing society as a whole. You know, one thing is... Uh, in, in most uh, uh, of these uh, um, uh, guidebooks or self-help books which uh, recommend happiness, it's something you have to do, right? I mean, so you should be more authentic or you should uh, do, be, do mindfulness, all right? It's always something. I have to listen to myself. I have to be creative. I have to be autonomous also. And uh, so, uh, and I really kind of, I, I really hate it. I've come to hate that more or less, right? And I believe even, I mean, most conceptions of ha happiness are really kind of resource-based. You know, the idea is your life gets happier if you earn more money. Actually, some books recommend just that, right? Happiness through more money. But uh, th this is um, probably, hopefully, only a minority of books. But the other is if you're healthier, so do something for your health, right? Or if you're more mindful or if you uh, uh, if you have more friends or so on, right? And I don't believe that, th that this is really giving you happiness. So, I mean, one thing is for me, the good life, I don't talk about happiness. Happiness is a totally distorted concept for, for many reasons. And I don't, in fact, I don't even talk about the good life because in German there are two ways of, of um, 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 uh, talking about the good life. One is a kind of uh, what I would call the good life. The other is a more processual thing. In German it's called das gelingende Leben. And it's translated, unfortunately, as the successful life. I don't like that term at all, right? It's not about success in life. What I mean with das gelingende Leben, the German term, is that it's a processual thing. It's, it's not something you achieve. It's not something you accumulate. It's a process. It's a form, I believe, happiness or the good life 
is in the way of relating to your surroundings, to what you have, to your life, right? It's a way of even, I call it appropriation, right? So, and because the interesting, there's one interesting thing about happiness studies, what they call baseline happiness. They found out that, that some people appear to always be happy, no matter where they live or what they do or whom they live with, while others tend to always be unhappy, right? Because at, at first the city is too big, then it is too small, then it is too high, or then it is too low, and so on. And it's so, it seems it's not the conditions, it's the way you appropriate the conditions. And I don't just mean that you have to adapt, because resonance for me is not a passive process, but it's not a dominating process either. It's, a, it's a, the way of connecting. And, but the, so one, one thing is resonance does not start with something you do. Resonance starts with something you experience. You, 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 you open up in order to be called by something, right? So it's something other that calls you, that touches you, that moves you. So if you want to be happy, I would really almost say, I mean, I don't want to be a counselor or a guide or anything of this. But, uh, but if I'm forced to answer the question, I would say, it's not something you do, it's, it's something you let happen, right? Uh, uh, try to hear something calling you. It might be the birds, or it might be the mountains, or the ocean, or some people, or some music, or some ideas. Something affects you, right? So I think that's one thing. But the other is that for me, resonance is not a subjective state, an emotional state. It's not a actually something the subject has or does or experiences, it's a relationship. And that means there's always another side. It has a social side. Resonance is much more of a social and political concept than happiness, which is just an individual psychological term. Rosa also emphasizes that resonance is a collective experience, something to be taken up by society as a whole, a way to restructure and reconceptualize social and political life. We really have to look at the conditions we live in. I mean, we cannot bring about resonance straightforward, right? I mean, we can, there's nothing we can do to get in resonance, right? I mean, I think we somehow already are by doing this interview, right? But you cannot enforce it. Sometimes even when you do an interview, find you always find, I don't quite understand the question. This is not what I want to say. So this happens, right? So we cannot um, just do it. But uh, what normally happens is that most of the day in the things we do, even while we at work in particular, right, in all spheres of work, but also while you go shopping, and maybe while you do exercises and while you do your tax form, fill in the tax forms or whatever it is, we're always in a mode of, actually I would call it in a mute mode, in a mute way of relating to the world or an alienated way of relating to the world. And then we try to create oasis of resonance, right? Normally that could be, for example, the concert hall on Friday night or the walk to the beach or the ocean on Saturday afternoon, or maybe the Sunday service in church, right? So I call this oasis of, 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 of um, resonance where you, where you want to be in a totally different mood, right? When you finally let loose, let things go, you don't want to control, to dominate, to get things done and so on. And so my, my claim is normally in our everyday lives, we operate in a mode of aggression. And then we, we, I, I need to get this done, I need to get rid of that, I need to call him answer her and so on um, and uh, resonance is a different state you sit in the concert hall and let yourself be affected but the problem there is that you don't really have the experience of self-efficacy of reaching out of doing things together so the the idea the vision is let's recreate our social institutions right that uh, that we kind of uh, that we have the capacity to create resonance in the everyday work we do in the everyday life we do maybe if you if, if you allow me i would like i think my paradigm uh, example 
example for this is really the way we, we uh, treat or interact with animals. Because there you see the two sides, right? On the one hand, we have the mass industries, I mean the, the meat industries, and even the laboratory animals uh, in, uh, in uh, medical and other um, laboratories. And, and to them, we don't have any form of resonance. It's actually that kids and people learn to kill every resonance, right? The, the, the cow which you slaughter, right, or you make meat of, is nothing you should resonate with. We treat it as just as capital or as a, as a resource. And it's the same with the animals in the, in the laboratory. But then we have the pets at home, the dog and the cat, right? And people spend more money on the pets than they spend on, on, on the poor or whatever people need. And the pet has no other function than being a source of resonance, right? When the cat is kind of crawling along your knees or so and, and purrs, you feel, yes, it's a kind of resonant um, uh, thing, right? But it's on the one hand you have pure resonance, on the other hand you have pure instrumental relationship. So I, th I want to rebuild institutions the way we deal with animals in a kind of in-between. In ecological farming it's very often the case actually that the cow has a name but it still has a function. In the end you might eat it or you milk it right? but nevertheless you realize that you are kind of in a resonant way connected to it. And I believe this kind of blending of resonant and instrumental relationships towards nature, towards our bodies is something we need to reintroduce in the educational institutions, in the care institutions, and actually in the institutions of everyday work. First of all, politics is very important. I really believe politics is important, and it might be that the current crisis has to do with the fact that we have become too antagonistic. I mean, when you think of a parliamentary debate, right, it's the opposite of what I mean by a resonant debate, because, because resonance means you listen to the other, you, you let yourself be touched, you try to answer in a way that transforms your position and the other position. And in a parliamentary political debate, you learn that you never should be touched or convinced by the argument of the other. The only thing you do is you try to kind of win the rhetorical battle. And certainly it's the same in the talk shows, right? Don't never, don't ever uh, uh, show that you're moved by the argument of what the, uh, of what the other makes. And then it translates into the streets. Protest, fight, make them go away. I mean, either you want to battle the fascists or you want to battle the immigrants or whatever it is. But it's a kind of totally antagonistic. So I think let's we have to regain the sense of resonance um, even in politics. But my main uh, institutions I look at are, are educational institutions because now we have in, in, in this logic of evidence-based research and politics, re education is all about kind of um, um, transmitting skills. Kids should learn this and should learn that and they should acquire that skill at that age and that skill at another age. But I think that's a total misconception of what education is about. Education is about, it's, it's the process through which young people get in resonance with the different spheres of life, for example. And it's the same in the medical industries or, or, or institutions and in care institutions. And I really believe because in care and education, resonance is a kind of, it, it's a natural way of relating to people. But, but our institutions do not allow for that. And, and therefore, people working in care services, for example, reproductive services, are always in a kind of double bind. On the one hand, they feel that there are human beings who have eyes and voices and a face they should get in resonance with. But on the other hand, they have this incredible strict requirements and they are always short on time. So um, the instrumental logic and the resonant logic are kind of battling in educational institutions, in care services, in politics, in farming, everywhere. Through this idea of resonance, Hartsmuth Rosa invites us to reimagine our social and political institutions, how we structure and experience relationships with each other, the social and natural world around us, and really, even ourselves. 
It calls on us to seek out and be open to meaningful connections that can impact us in profound and unknowable ways. Any roadmap needs an endpoint. Even if we don't have a precise destination, I would argue that the concept of resonance gives us a lot to think about in terms of what direction we should be heading in, and perhaps more importantly, how we hope to get there. How can our social movements, organizations, or our everyday practices create the conditions for resonance? If we are to believe Rosa, we all have the capacity for resonance. The possibility exists, but it is the current configuration of institutions, structures, and dominant values which prevent its cultivation and expansion. That's it for this episode of Roadmaps for Changing the World. Tune in later this month for future episodes. Have comments or questions about what you've heard? Give us a shout at innovation at ustpol.ca.